Well, now, would you look at me uploading two weeks in a row? Never thought we'd see it. I'm here. I'm doing it. I'm proud of myself because, as you all know, it is easy for me to get derailed. Um, I realized after recording that well, last week's episode how I was on. Okay, I had like two weeks in a row that I did. So, woohoo, not really accomplishing too much with this week. But the week after my last two week, um, what's the word? Uh, succession of episodes um, my anxiety and like just a lot of things built up and then just culminated and that is what derailed me so I'm hope like and it was like the worst it had been so I'm hoping nothing like that happens again and I'm able to keep myself on track so far so good let's get into it then I guess okay so we're carrying on with the Halloween theme of the month because like I said best month of the year was time for Christmas been there done that And I decided to not necessarily do a ghost story today, but to do um, a creepy haunted set, allegedly. And that would be the set of The Exorcist, which is an iconic, not just Halloween movie, but just movie in general, really, really broke some, it it was groundbreaking for its time, definitely. And I feel like it still holds up in levels of terror from today's standards. Um, I have seen it once and it hit the mic. Sorry. It was years ago. So I really want to rewatch it with a little bit more, um, I was going to say balls, but that's sexist, isn't it? Uh, courage. Let's say that. Okay. Um, but especially after doing this, because there's a lot, but all, okay, we'll get into it, but I feel like some parts will be harder for me to watch now knowing what I've learned with this. So let's just freaking let's do it. So for those who are completely out of the loop, The Exorcist is about a 12-year-old girl named Reagan who is demonically possessed and, you guessed it, needs an exorcism. So it um, it was based originally off of a book by the same name by William Peter Blatty, uh, and he wrote and produced this, the film adaptation of it as well. And it was um, directed by William Friedkin, who seems just as insane as this movie based off of what I've researched and what you'll hear in right, well, right now. The reputation for the set and film being cursed was off to a great start soon after the film began shooting in 1972 when a bird flew into a circuit box, causing most of the set to be completely burned down. Well, quick note here. I've seen interviews where they say, we don't know what caused the fire, but I've also read things where it was a bird in a circuit box. So just Either way, the set was burned down except for Reagan's room, which if I don't know if I already, I don't remember if I said her name, but that's the girl who's possessed. So it's very strange that that was the only room that was completely preserved and free of the flames. So already that got people's feathers ruffled and a little suspicious of what was going on on set. And that actually led to them having the set blessed by a priest who actually played one of the he played, uh, what, who did he play? He played father something. He played one of them in the movie and he blessed the set. He didn't do an exorcism on it, even though I think they initially wanted him to, but he blessed the set and everyone on it. And no offense to him. He doesn't seem to be that good at his job based off of everything else that happened. We'll start slow and begin with the injuries related to the movie. Uh, many people were reported to have thrown up and or passed out while watching the movies in the theaters. And um, there was a show on Shudder 
I think it's called Kills, Kills, Curse Film Sets or something like that. And the first episode is about The Exorcist. So, of course, I watched it to do my research. And Linda Blair said that the PR team was in charge of a lot of this hype and kind of bringing attention to the film because also it was very highly the success of the film was very doubted so the the PR team was working overtime to try to to try to drag them all in and apparently they would have ambulances parked outside of the theaters that it was airing in in at I don't know what I was going for there so a little fake but also there is a an actual story of a woman who passed out and um she says that the subliminal like shots, I think that because the um, the demon, they do shots of the demon and it caused her, it disoriented her so much that she fainted and then she broke her jaw. And so she sued Warner Brothers, even though, I mean, not really Warner Brothers fault, especially with the hype that was going on around the movie after it was released. You kind of know what you're getting yourself into, but also girls got to eat. Who knows? Who knows? But um, they did settle that out of court for an undisclosed amount because apparently they didn't want bad publicity, which is ironic because they were paying a whole team to give them bad publicity, essentially. But, you know, what can we do? I'm not there. I'm not in charge of it. The next injury I'm going to talk about is Ellen Burstyn, who played Reagan's mom in the in the movie. Her injury was a lifelong injury. So Friedkin was very into, like, kind of like the older school special effects where he had the um the actors and actresses strapped up to like wire systems so any movements that they were doing were real and they were controlled by stunt people and there's a scene well I won't spoil if you haven't seen it and you want to see it I'll try to like eh, honestly there's probably gonna be spoilers in this anyway there's a scene where um where Reagan's demonic strength shoves her mom to the floor. And um, because they were harnessed, the person in charge of Ellen's, uh, in charge of her wires, they yanked too hard. And she, they like flew her to the floor and she ended up injuring her spine permanently. And they used that shot in the movie. So the sound of her screaming is not acting. That is her actually like really fucking herself up. And it is authentic pain. And apparently she um, she told the director, like, you're going to hurt me. This is not a good idea. And he he didn't really care anything for his art, apparently. And that actually brings me to my next point. Um, not necessarily a cursed thing, but in another interview, um, Ellen Burstyn claimed that Friedkin was, what you call him, a maniac, I believe, because... Apparently, he would either fire off guns or slap the actors right in front of, or not right in front of, right before they would start filming. So their looks of fear or anger were authentic and not acting. So, I mean, I don't know. I like, I can appreciate the authenticity, but at the expense of people just doing their job, I don't think that that's like the chillest thing to do, especially when the actor is saying, you're going to hurt me and you say, I don't care. Also, the firing the gun off thing reminds me of, um, what's his name? What's the wall of sound guy? Phil, Phil Spector. He would apparently do that just to fuck with people and obviously to kill people because he ended up doing that, but that's a different story. All right, moving on to Linda Blair. She is the, well, she's now a woman, but she was the girl playing Reagan, who is the possessed, the possessed chick. 
she had a similar instance where um, there's a scene of her like laying down and sitting up and like rapidly like thrashing in her bed and the stunt operator was too aggressive and he like was actually like really fucking Linda Blair up when he was doing that and if you watch it like if you watch that clip like the thought of that being real and not a special effect or some kind of like animatronic I don't know this was the 70s so who I don't know what the technology was back then but the fact that that's a little girl being like pulled back and forth like that so aggressively it's like that's what I was referring to is that would be hard to watch because again they used her real screams and like the real take of her being injured in the movie so she is screaming in genuine pain and it's I don't know to me that would be kind of like that'd be kind of hard to stomach like more so than anything else I think in the movie would be because it's all fake and you know that but the fact that this is like a little girl being hurt it's just sad Speaking of sad, let's upgrade our tragedies associated to the set to death. We're, we're over the injuries now. Let's talk about the people who died. Uh, there were apparently nine deaths that were reported to be associated with the production of the movie. Uh, to start with, Linda Blair and Max von Sido, uh, uh, who played Father Marin, had family members die during production. So that those are some... And when I say associated, I don't mean died on set or whatever. I just mean people who were either working on or related to people working on the movie while it was filming or shortly after who died. So just so you don't think I'm misleading. Uh, Anyway, some actors who um, their character dies in the movie ended up dying really shortly after production finished, which was, that's kind of eerie a little bit, a little foreshadowy that they die in the movie, then they die shortly after making the movie. Uh, One of these people was Jack McGowan. He played Burke Dennings. He died of complications from from influenza that he got in London during a flu epidemic. And his character dies by being thrown out a window. So at least he didn't follow the same fate exactly. No, thank you. And then another actor who died shortly after the film was, uh, I'm going to probably say this wrong, Vasiliki Maliaros. Maliaros? I don't know. I'm really sorry. Um, But anyway, she played Father Kara's deceased mother, and she died of natural causes before the film was even released. And she actually wasn't even an actress at all. That was never her intention. But the director saw her at a restaurant in New York City and was like, you would be perfect for this. So follow your dreams or don't even have any dreams. And one day you might be a star. Not that she didn't have dreams. I don't know this woman. That, That came out wrong. I didn't mean it. Let's go back to talking about death, shall we? Uh, a couple other people died while on set, a, um, a set security guard and a special effects expert. They also died. I'm not sure if they died during filming or after. I would assume, I think during filming, actually. That's my guess. Don't hold me to it. You know, we've you know me by now. And now we're going to talk about like some actual murder shit. I don't know if you know. I didn't know until a few years ago, honestly, um, that there is a actual murderer in the movie crazy shit his name's paul bateson and um let's just start with saying in following suit um in his quest for as much authenticity as possible the director used a real uh neuropsych i'm gonna let me just not butcher this neuropsychiatric surgeon in his team uh for the scenes of reagan getting an angioplasty i think it is oh you know i think i said that wrong too getting something done in the hospital. He used a real medical team. Let's just say that. 
And one of the men on the team was Paul Bateson, who I just said, and he was a, in real life, a chief neuroradiology technologist and a fucking murderer. Let's talk about that. So the story goes on September 14th of 1977, which wasn't even four years since The Exorcist came out, the body of a film critic named Addison Verrill was discovered in his own Verrill's apartment. And at first they thought it was a robbery, like gone, gone wrong, like a home invasion situation. But journalist Arthur Bell of the Village Voice reported that there were valuable items that were left behind that if someone was, you know, attempting to rob this man, that they would have taken it with them. So they then moved on to the next suspicion, which apparently in Greenwich Village in New York, there were like a string of murders against the gay community. And because at the time, especially um, any type of minority were not given the same value of life by the media. So it was very not, it was not very, um, it wasn't covered that much by, by journalists. I don't know why this one was. I'm assuming because of his kind of relevance to the media anyway, because he was a film critic. I think that might be why he got some publicity, but I mean, it's just, it's not, it's sad. We all know that unless you're like a, a white, mostly blonde little girl, sometimes a man, but mostly women, you're just not going to get the, the publicity that you deserve. Anyway. Oh, quick side note. I just would like to say that, um, the podcast up and vanished is now doing an indigenous woman who has gone missing. This is a quick little segue. And I really respect that because they are purposely giving a voice to an under, an underserviced community, just minorities in general, like I said, but I really, I respect that they are making a point to be like, these women are just as important and we need to talk about them. Anyway, let's get back to the murder at hand. Uh, okay. Actually, I'm going to quick little pause. I'm going to read a, an excerpt from an article on Esquire.com, which I actually found out about because the man who wrote this article was in the Shudder documentary episode about the cursed set. So one sec. Okay. So in the article, just a reminder, Bell, when they refer to Bell, that's the journalist who initially covered this murder on the Village Voice. Okay. So it says, quote, on September 22nd, eight days after Verrill's murder, Bell got a call from an unidentified person claiming to have killed Verrill. As Bell recounted on October 3rd, on an October 3rd Village Voice cover story, and then this is an excerpt from that, it says, 10 minutes later, the phone rang. A clear, pleasant voice asked, is that your picture on page 23 of The Voice? No, I answered. That's Addison Verrill. It sure doesn't look like Addison Verrill. I killed Addison. Oh, then what did Addison look like? Better than that, he said, look, I like your story and I like your writing, but I'm not a psychopath. And then it says, the unnamed caller told Bell that he and Verrill met at Badlands at a gay bar or a gay bar on Christopher Street. Together, the two did a cocktail of drugs, including pot, cocaine, and amyl nitrate. I'm going to say that wrong. Until about 3 a.m. when they uh, left to continue partying at another bar called Mineshaft. At 5 a.m., the caller said they, they taxied to Verrill's 17th floor studio where they drank, had sex, and did more drugs until 7.30 a.m. Then he told Bell, something hit me. Addison hadn't been reciprocal. It wasn't just the sex act itself that wasn't reciprocal. It was a soul act, too. I wanted a lasting thing, something that would go beyond sex, into friendship, a lover, or marriage. I can't fathom exactly what I did. I can see that it was my alcoholism. There's a stigma placed on alcoholics. But I needed money, and I hated the rejection. It was a rejection that triggered things. Something flared up in my head. I decided to take 
Oh, I decided to do something I'd never done before. I took a heavy frying pan from the kitchen and knocked Addison out. Then I went into the kitchen drawer, or went into the drawer in the right-hand side of the kitchen, removed a knife, and stuck it into Addison's chest. I plunged it too high. I should have stuck it a bit more towards the center left. Then the article goes on to say how um, Veril ended up, like, reporting things about the crime scene that only officials would know, or obviously the person who did it. So they were pretty sure that they... They believed that this was a true confession. This wasn't like someone fucking with the police. And then I guess another person called. I'm not sure if it was him again, but um, they said they basically led the police to Paul Bateson's apartment, which it makes me think that the second person to call wasn't um, Bateson himself because I th- it seemed like there was some like, what are you doing here when um, when the cops got there? So if he like was trying to lead them to his apartment, then... Obviously, he would know exactly what they were doing there. So, yeah. And so, obviously, very sad, very fucked up. He says he's not a psychopath. I beg to differ if you're going to freak out like that over rejection. Like, we've all been rejected, some more than others. I'm some. And I never felt like hitting someone over the head with a fucking skillet. So, call me crazy, but don't because it that would be you. Um, anyway, so Bateson was also suspected of murdering other unsolved murders of other gay men that were um just i like i said unsolved here we go just repeating myself um and there were people who say that like people that knew Bateson that were like yeah he's mentioned that he's killed before but um i'm gonna actually read another so the journalist who wrote this article this is all coming from the article on xquire i think let me get his name hold on all right, I'm terribly organized this week. I apologize for kind of being all over the place. Um, but his name is Matt Miller, not Mac Miller, Matt Miller. Uh, and then he tried to do all he could to like verify all this information. Apparently, he tried to get in touch with Friedkin to see his perspective. That's the director um, to get his perspective on everything. And he was unable to. But then he includes in the article this quote from a podcast that Friedkin was on called It Happened in Hollywood. And the quote says, he was a really nice guy. I remember he wore a leather studded bracelet and had an earring, which in 1972 was not common in the workplace. Then about four or five years later, after the film, I see after the film, I see front page on the New York Post and the Daily News that he's accused of five or six murders. And they were murders in S&M bars on the west side of Manhattan. His lawyer's name was in the story. And I called his lawyer and told him who I was and asked him, could I visit with Paul? His lawyer said, OK. He was at Rikers Island. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm sorry. I went through about eight layers of bureaucracy and I get into his cell where there's a guy outside and I'm sitting with him in the cell. He was very cheerful. He said, I remember killing this one guy. I cut him up and I put his body parts in a plastic bag and threw it in the East River. Well, this is how they got him. At the bottom of the bag in a very small print of a very small print that you can't even read. It said property of NYU Medical Center Neuropsychiatric Center. He said, that's the only one I remember, but they want me to confess to another five or six. And I said, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm over. I'm thinking it over because if I confess to five or six or to six or seven of these, I'll lower the sentence. And then again, that's okay. End quote. That's me now. Um, the, the author of the article says that there was no evidence of a confession on Bateson's end for the other murder, nor was there evidence of a potential deal struck with him and also he couldn't find any evidence in the nypd case files of them even investigating him to even try to see if he was linked to these murders so i don't know 
I don't know what's true. That quote is from the director, though, so I don't know. I don't know if he's, like, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and, like, trying to get more lore around his movie because, obviously, like, we're still talking about it 50 years, almost almost 50 years later. Who knows? Um, and sadly enough, moving on, this is not the last murder associated with the film. Uh, the woman who played... Uh, she doesn't have an on-screen character, but the woman who does the voice of the demon inside of Reagan's body, she had a very tragic incident happen in her family a few years. Well, I say few. It was like 15 years after the movie, but still. It was really sad. Um, so according, I found this AP News article from April of 1989, and it said, the headline is, Son criticizes actress Mercedes McCambridge before suicide killings. And Mercedes McCambridge is a woman who did the voice of the demon. And um, so her son, uh, his name is John Markle. He killed his wife and kids. Kid or kids, I don't know. It just says his family, definitely including his wife and at least a kid. I don't know how many he had. But anyway, uh, this happened on November 16th of 1987. And I think that it was just being, um, this particular article came out in 1989 because the... um, what is it? I don't know what the legal term for it is, but basically the the papers that they discuss in this article, which I will read off of, they were private because I think that's when the court process was going on. And so while a case is active, you don't have like you don't have access to that. But then once it's closed, it becomes public access. So I think that that's why the little delay in time happens here. But basically, uh, the murder-suicide occurred after Markle was, quote, fired from the Stevens Inc. brokerage house for charging losses to the firm and gains to his mother's account, which he handled. And then, uh, referring to the notes that I was talking about, it brings up a 13-page letter, and it's kind of a long quote from the, from the letter, but it's pretty gnarly, so I'm going to read it all. So in this letter, he says, I was essentially raised by live-in maids and relatives. I was con- conceptualized to save a bad marriage i watched you try to kill yourself twice you have never been there for me when the chips were down when i had or when i cried on the phone you called me a sniveling wimp that was weakening his position okay that was actually not long at all i remember that being a lot longer i don't know if maybe it's because i write all my notes out by hand and i think maybe it just seemed like a long time anyway those were his words to his mother so he kind of implicates her for the reason why he felt like there was no there was no way out from you know being fired and having to face his family which I've heard of a lot of cases like this no shock I'm a true crime fan and I'm not a fan of it um I'm fascinated I'm on the true crime fascination bandwagon I'll say that um and I hear a lot about you know men who no offense men but people who are the breadwinners for their families and then they lose their job and then they don't know how to tell the family they don't want to let anyone down so they kill them like bitch there are so many let the bitch like at least divorce you and move on and find another man to take care of her if that's what she wants to do not saying that that is how things should be I would like to clarify that immediately but if that's especially in more traditional times like don't fucking kill her or your kids it's just gross growth it obviously I'm saying that's the people who number one will never hear this number two uh, are obviously unwell. So these words will mean nothing to them. But um, anyway, back to the letter. Notice how, 
or not notice, but remember how I said that he would like move funds into his mom's account. But in the letter, luckily for the uh, woman, she was not implicated in that at least. They actually were able to prove that she was not involved in the kind of money smuggling. So at least there's that. And then I'm going to actually use her as a little segue onto the kind of final touches of this episode. There are obviously a lot of other weird things that happen on this set. So I'm just going to do like a quick little thing, like quick little list of things that don't really have like a long story worth bringing up on, you know, making a big deal out of. So we're going to start with her. So as I mentioned, she was the voice of the demon. And in order to get that um, like kind of throaty, gnarly voice that she had, she would chain smoke and apparently drink like whiskey or she broke her sobriety, by the way. She was a sober woman, and she broke her sobriety for this movie, which is already... I mean, I know that a job's a job, but that's just... That's crazy to me that that would... I don't know. I feel like sobriety is such a big deal and such an accomplishment. Um, anyway, and anyway, she has a checkered past with, obviously, like, suicide attempts. It's just... So that's another weird thing. But she'd also swallow raw eggs to kind of get that raspiness going. Um, but yeah, the fact that she broke her sobriety is something that I find to be a little kind of, eh. Another weird thing that happened was in Rome during the movie's premiere, a church near the theater was struck by lightning, which is like, especially because Italy is a heavily Catholic, you know, place. They'll have the Vatican, which is its own, I know, technical grounds, but still, it's weird that that would happen there. Um... And then Linda Blair, she had, uh, not only was she Oscar nominated for the movie, but she was so convincing that people thought that she was an advocate for the devil, basically. It's like, no, bitch, this is just a very talented child actor. But anyway, Warner Brothers had to give her bodyguards for the next six months after the film came out because she was getting death threats. And um, back again to that Shudder show that I watched, she would, the interviewer asked her like, so you had bodyguards? And she was like, I'm not even going to talk about that. Like I, I don't talk about that. So on the surface, it sounds kind of not harmless. Cause obviously if she's getting death threats, but kind of also who doesn't get death threats in Hollywood. But the fact that she wouldn't talk about it, I feel like there was something more serious at hand that was truly upsetting and traumatizing to her. Uh, yeah. Okay. And then we're going to go back to injuries on set. During the production of the set itself, a carpenter lost a thumb and a lighting tech lost a toe, which is like, I get how a carpenter would lose its thumb. My grandpa cut off all of his fingers because he is a kitchen designer. Um, He sewed them back on. But anyway, I don't get how you lose a toe. That would, no. Because I'm thinking like you stub a toe, that shit is like end me now kind of pain. So to injure yourself so much that you cut your toe off, off no thank you absolutely not and then I'll just finish it off with another weird kind of fact but I mentioned that the film itself was based off of a book and the book was based off of a true story that the author um, heard about a 14 year old boy in 1949 in Maryland who was playing with a Ouija board and he quote underwent an illness that caused his personality to change caused welts and lettering to appear on his body And he had to go through some exorcisms. And apparently, while he was being exorcised, I don't know if that's the right term, but um, the bed would shake 
while he was while it was going on, which is like very similar to what goes on in the movie. And he also quote um, spit a quote foul substance onto the priest, which is the classic pea soup, you know. And uh, that's that's all for today. Sorry, if this is a little quickie. Sorry, I'm a little all over the place. That's just me. I am trying to not be, but I'm not perfect, which is just such a shock. I know such a shock. But anyway, thank you guys for listening again. I am excited to keep doing these Halloween themed ones. Let me know if you liked like because like I said, this isn't a ghost thing, but like let me know if you like this kind of deal or if you would prefer just haunted. Let me know anything weird that you want to want me to research and and maybe I freaking will. But thank you guys. Enjoy your Halloween month. I'll be back next week, so this isn't goodbye forever. But it is goodbye. So goodbye. Actually, just kidding. It's not goodbye yet. If you could pretty, pretty please rate and review this podcast on the podcast app, I would really appreciate it. Give it that little zhuzh that it needs and that I, that I need to, you know, we all need a zhuzh. But anyway, yeah, I would really appreciate it. And if you like it, tell your friends, spread the word. Okay. And now goodbye for real.